Thank you, Ben, for sharing that update with us and for the work that the missions committee does to help us spread the gospel uh, through partnerships around the world. I do encourage you to keep the Kebu people and the country of Togo in your, your prayers. We are in a series in Daniel. We began the series last week in chapter one, so we are in chapter two this week. We're going to do the first half of it. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up, follow along, and the passage will also be up here on the screen, or you can follow along on your devices. While you are turning there, just wanted to acknowledge, uh, of course, that this is Memorial Day weekend, and that this can be a weekend uh, that's hard for some people. You know, if, if you have a loved one in your family or someone who's dear to you that gave their life um, to protecting the freedoms of our country. And I just want to say that I hope that even as you experience grief, if this uh, applies to you as, as you experience grief uh, this weekend, that you will feel our collective and heartfelt gratitude for your sacrifice and service and the, the service of your loved ones who, um, who gave their lives for our freedom. Uh, let's look at Daniel chapter 2. If you are able to stand, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? Begin in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the, king, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. 
And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we get to open your word, hear your voice, and Lord, I pray that as a result of our time here this morning, that we would leave here seeing you better trusting you more. Lord, I pray, help us to see the barriers, the obstructions in our, in our hearts and our minds. Help us to see the patterns that weigh us down and pull us away from you. Help us to see where we fail to see you rightly. And Lord, change us by your grace. Would you help this morning? Would you work in power? Lord, we do also want to give thanks to you for the families uh, who are here or who we know who have um, lost loved ones in service to this country fighting for our freedoms. 
we do pray that you would comfort them this day, that they would be encouraged by the gratitude of a thankful nation. We love you, Lord, and we, we give this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, there is <clears throat> nothing quite like the first time that a pair of sore eyes puts on a pair of glasses with the much-needed prescription. Now, I recognize that by opening with this illustration, I'm sounding very old. <laughs> but it's true. You put on a pair of glasses uh, with the necessary prescription, and all of a sudden, everything comes into focus. Everything becomes crisper, clearer, seemingly more, more vibrant. You can see the words on a page again. It's remarkable. And like uh, enjoying the nuance of a well-told joke, you can appreciate the fine details all around you in life again, right? And then the sobering realization hits you that nothing has actually changed. Although it, it appears to you that everything else has become clearer and more defined, in reality, nothing around you has actually changed. That was precisely the way it was before and has been and will continue being. All that has changed is now you are able to see it, whereas before you could not. But that new vision will change everything you do from here on. And the same is true of how we see God. We may wander about in the seeming fuzziness, haziness, even the troubles of this life, wondering what this is for, why it is this way, why on earth it isn't different. We may be tempted to think that the problem is out there, this fuzzy world that can't come into focus, this mess that needs to be cleaned up. Well, there's no shortage of mess out there, for sure. But the real problem, the greater problem, for us anyways, is not out there. It's right here. And it's right here. We struggle to see our way around because our eyesight is bad, as it were. And we are in need of a restored vision of our God, our Creator. And our prayer through this series this summer is that we would see God more clearly, more fully, in such a way that it leads to a deeper trust and a greater delight in him. And that we would then be equipped to live with a resilient faith in a challenging and sometimes often confusing world. And so week by week, as we work through this book of Daniel, we are reflecting on different attributes or characteristics uh, or work of God in this world. And last week, we reflected on the faithfulness of God, the opening chapter of the book of Daniel and how it recounted how the people of Judah were, were carried off into exile in Babylon in waves, and that began with Daniel and with his friends and others in 605 B.C., 
And we reflected on how God was faithful to sanctify his people through the exile. And he was faithful to fortify his people in the midst of their hardships. And finally, we reflected on how God is still at work in his people today, sanctifying and fortifying us for his work in this world. This week, in the first half of chapter 2, we see a different attribute of God, and that is his wisdom. We see the wisdom of God. And especially what stands out to us, the reality here, is that navigating this world with a resilient faith requires relying upon the wisdom of God and chiefly relying upon the God who is wise. And we, we see that in a couple of ways. We see that God is the source or the possessor of wisdom. And we see also that God is the provider of wisdom. So we begin by looking at how God is the source or the possessor of wisdom. And you know, in this chapter, Daniel and his friends encountered their first brush with death which is one among many. You know, he lives quite an eventful life. Um, Hopefully your life is a little less eventful than Daniel's. But it starts with a dream. It's not his dream. It is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the king of Babylon, the one who had carried them off in exile. And dreams in this day were were viewed as a way of the the future kind of being revealed and and warning someone, uh, which was absolutely the case here. And so Nebuchadnezzar woke up in distress, and he summoned his experts to interpret the dream. Now, in Akkadian literature, the group of counselors here that he summons was referred to as the Masters of Esoteric Knowledge, which is quite a title. You know, how would you like that to be your business card? Like, put that on your personal website, Master of Esoteric Knowledge. That's pretty great. Uh, And it it covered the whole spectrum here. So you had Egyptian dream interpreters. These were the magicians. Mesopotamian specialists in exorcism. These were the enchanters. There were uh, practitioners of magic and casters of spells to try to ward off any ill effects of these dreams. And these were the sorcerers here. And then finally, there's the general priestly guild of diviners, which later on, became known as astrologers, and actually they're referred to both in both ways in this chapter. So these are the Chaldeans or the astrologers. So these were the experts in that day, right? These were the wise men who could speak authoritatively into any subject that the king was concerned about. And so he he summons them, and he asks them to interpret this dream that he's had. But there's a twist, He wanted them not only to tell the interpretation, but to tell them the dream itself. And so these masters of esoteric knowledge began to sweat, no doubt. They tried to coax him to disclose the dream so that they could offer their opinions about it, right? But to no avail. Uh, Instead, he gave them an ultimatum. He said, reveal the dream and its interpretation or you will be pulled limb from limb, and your house is turned to rubble. Which is not exactly a, like how to win friends and influence people kind of approach to your relationships. Um, but I guess he didn't have to take that approach as the king of Babylon. 
It's hard to, uh, to know why Nebuchadnezzar was so bent on this path. It's possible that he had suspicions about their abilities or their motivations. You know, in verse 9, he says that uh, he's accusing these experts of agreeing to speak lying and corrupt words. So perhaps they had done something that made him a little bit suspicious. But it's also possible that he's just a tyrant being a tyrant on Monday morning, you know? And when tyrants get grumpy, things tend to not go so well for the people around them. Uh, And this dream was evidently unsettling enough that he wanted assurances about what was to come and how to avoid it if possible. So his counselors give this final response of exasperation, and they just say, like we would, they admit that this task is impossible. No one can do what the king is asking. And then they go on to say, it's only the gods who could do this, but their dwelling is not with flesh. Outraged, Nebuchadnezzar orders the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. And we recall from chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are, they fit into this class. They would have been freshly minted, like they just walked the stage, graduated college from their Babylonian institution of esoteric knowledge. And the first week on the job, they uh, get carried off by some strong men to the chopping block. So that's a tough first week. So the king's men come to carry Daniel and his friends off to be executed. And here, you know, it's good to note how different Daniel's response is from that of his colleagues. In the face of impending execution, the text says that Daniel responded with prudence and discretion, which I love that. He tried to be reasonable, to inquire of the the captain of the king, why is the, the king so distressed here? Why is this so urgent? And then upon learning the details, he requests to go into the king, to ask the king to appoint a time when he can come and give the interpretation. And then he goes back, and he gathers his companions, and together they seek mercy from the God of heaven. They plea to God in prayer, and and he answers them. And God reveals the dream and the meaning of the dream to Daniel in another vision of the night. And then they respond in praise. Now the question is, why did Daniel respond so differently from his contemporaries? And what is the point behind recounting this story? You know, we can be tempted to read this story and other historical narratives in Scripture kind of somewhat moralistically. So we can read this and think the lesson is, you know, those pagans around him were weak, but Daniel was strong. And the moral of the story is to be like Daniel. And yes, Daniel was strong. And yes, Daniel is an example that we should emulate here. But the deeper question that the text is begging us to ask is why? Why was Daniel different? What made Daniel into that kind of a man? What equipped him with this kind of resilience in the face of adversity, even with the threat of death? And the answer is his view of and his trust in God. And we see it brilliantly in the way that he describes God in his response of praise. 
after the, the vision, he says of God, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He's saying God doesn't merely have some wisdom or have some might that's limited, constrained by the right circumstances and conditions, like, you know, like the Babylonian gods who, who weren't able to do this. Rather, the true God, the God of Daniel, is the owner of wisdom. He's the owner of might. Wisdom and might belong to him. As the NIV puts it, wisdom and power are his. And then one verse down, he spells out this idea further. He says, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. In other words, God knows all things. He knows the deep things of this world. Those things that are hidden, that are tucked away, that are inaccessible. The things that from our perspective are concealed by the dark, he sees and he knows. Even those things that seem a mystery to us, the things that we don't understand, the sources of confusion and angst for us, he knows. And because he knows all the facts and all the variables and all possible permutations through the past, up to the present, and into a future for infinity, because of this, he and he alone has perfect wisdom. Perfect wisdom. But not only wisdom, he has the power to act, to reveal, to bring clarity, and to effect change. Wisdom and might. Which is why in the face of an unrealistic expectation and the threats, with the threats of violence of, of seemingly impossible situation, Daniel is able to respond with prudence, with discretion, and with peace. Because he trusts in a God that has both perfect wisdom and the power to act. So what does this mean for us today? Seeing God as the possessor of or the source of true wisdom can give us a confidence to face challenges of our day unlike any other. When I was in graduate school um, in Chicago, my wife and I attended an event at the seminary that we're studying and uh, Josh Moody the pastor from College Church in, in Wheaton came to speak at that event, and then they did a Q&A afterwards, and he'd been in ministry for some time at that point, and um, during the Q&A, I got the, the chance to bring up a question about doubt to him. This was something that had been an issue that I had wrestled with, a number of issues I was, had wrestled with in the past, and even some questions that I was dealing with in, in the time. And I'll never forget, he had a couple bits of advice that were so helpful for me, but one was that he shared about his upbringing. Uh, as I recall, his father was a pastor. When he was growing up, he would you know, be reading his Bible, and these questions would come to mind. about What, is, what does this mean? How do I put this together? Uh, or <clears throat> and he'd have interactions with friends. Uh, or, or just out of his own curiosity, questions about the faith would, would come to mind, and he would come to his dad with those questions and ask, what, how do you make sense of this? And his dad always had a 
fairly reasonable answer, somewhat thought through answer. You know, even if he, I guess he couldn't answer in that moment, he could get back with him, you know, if it was a really uh, stumper question. But he, he always had some kind of answer. And so what that did is year after year, question after question, as Josh worked through these things and he came to his dad and there was an answer, it instilled in him a confidence that even if he himself didn't know the answer to some of his questions or some of the difficulties that he experienced, that that didn't mean that there wasn't one. That didn't mean that there wasn't a good explanation. And in fact, it was reasonable to assume, given the track record, that there was a good explanation, even if he couldn't see it in that moment. So rather than, by working through these questions, rather than cultivating a spirit of skepticism or cynicism, it developed in him an attitude of confidence in the explanatory power of the Christian faith. And that fueled his life, his walk with Christ, and his ministry for decades to come. Now, I love that, that picture because you think about how that applies to us. If we have a God and Father in heaven who not only has halfway decent answers to our questions, but who has all knowledge of all facts and all variables and who has perfect wisdom, how much greater should our confidence be? If we get to serve and know the God of heaven to whom belongs wisdom, how much more confidence should we have in that God in the face of challenges, of the adversity, of the uncertainties of our day? Seeing God as the God of all wisdom gives us a resolve in the face of our struggles. So let's say you are facing some ailment and you've sought care for it and the doctors have tried everything that they, they know, but they, it persists. And you begin to wrestle with this question in your soul. Of why, Lord, is this happening? Why, why is this going on? Well, if you look at that and you perceive the suffering as pointless, as inexplicable, that there's no answer to this, this question, then it will lead you down the path of despair. But if instead you look at that question and you realize that there is a purpose behind the suffering that you're experiencing, either for you or for someone else or for some broader purpose, then even if you do not know what the answer is, you'll be strengthened to endure it. It's like the, the pregnant woman that endures the discomfort and the fatigue and the demands and the risk and the pain of childbirth with courage and strength because she sees that on the other side of it is life. And that is exactly what seeing and knowing God as a God of wisdom does for us. When we face suffering, even as we feel the pain, we experience the heartache, we call out to God in our sorrow, we're able to do so with, with a confidence in God, not because we know the answer, but because we know the one who knows the answer. He knows perfectly even when we do not. He sees perfectly even when we do not. And He's promised to work 
even through our hardships for our good and for his glory. Whether that's experiencing chronic pain that persists day after day, or living with unwanted singleness, or going through marital difficulties and working to rebuild broken trust, or battling addictions that seem stronger than your ability to fight, or wrestling with sexual desires and, and the pressure of our society to follow your desires rather than to follow Christ. When we're tempted to view those hardships as meaningless and journey into the pit of despair, we can instead turn and look to God and see him as the God of wisdom and be reassured that our suffering is meaningful, even if we don't fully understand it and we never do in this lifetime. There is one who does. There is one who sees fully and who is working for your good with perfect wisdom. And if we see God in that way, think about the kind of resolve that that will give you in faith, even in the midst of hardships. But it doesn't only give you a resolve, it also brings about a deep peace. You know, if we trust a God who knows everything perfectly, then that means he knows the deepest and the darkest things about us. He knows the things that we have, we have hidden away, the things that we've buried deep in our soul in the darkness. He knows your wounds, your fears, your trauma. He knows your insecurities, and your weaknesses, and your failures. He knows. And in fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves because our knowledge is, and our perception is, is biased and limited. But he knows completely. And we don't have to hide from him. He's the one with whom light dwells, and he's the one who reveals mysteries. He wants to help us make sense of all of that. He wants us to bring those things out of the darkness and into his light and to experience healing and transformation and peace that only he can bring. Because we remember that he is faithful to sanctify and to fortify us, right? So seeing God as the, the possessor of, the source of true wisdom gives us a, a confidence to face the challenges of our day personally, broadly, with a resolve and with a peace. The second reality that we see about God's wisdom in this chapter is we see that God is not only the possessor of wisdom, but he is the, the provider of wisdom. You know, it's pretty remarkable to consider uh, this aspect of Daniel's response. When the, the captain of the king comes to take him and his friends away to their untimely demise, Daniel asks to go into the king and for the king to appoint a time when he can offer the interpretation. But notice that at this point, 
He did not have an answer. He didn't know the interpretation, much less the dream itself. But he trusted that God was going to provide it. Now, the cynic could say, well, you know, he's just buying time. And that's certainly possible. But it's not at all how Daniel is portrayed here or elsewhere in the book. You know, there isn't one life-threatening situation that he encounters, and among those there are many, where the response of Daniel is this, like, this plea of desperation to his accusers, like he's just grasping for whatever is going to keep him alive. Not once does he respond that way. So it doesn't really square with the data. But more than that, we get a description of how Daniel sees God uh, in regards to this, in his response of praise. After God reveals the mystery to him, look at how he describes God. He says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And then further down, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us this king's matter. He says, you, O oh God, have given me wisdom and might. You see, here and in every occasion throughout this book, Daniel possesses a collectedness and a courage that is rooted in a conviction that God is with them and that God will provide for whatever they need, including wisdom. And so Daniel stepped into the void, trusting that God was not only the possessor the source of perfect wisdom, but that he's the giver and the provider of wisdom. And the Lord proved faithful to provide. And so God makes this vision known to Daniel, and look at the effect of it in him. You know, he's brought before the king. Finally, he gets a chance to ex give the explanation for this. And Nebuchadnezzar asks him, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? <clears throat> And Daniel responds with extraordinary boldness. Look at this. He says, no wise man can do this. Now, if you remember, that's the kind of speech that got everybody in trouble earlier on in the book, right? That was what the wise men said earlier that set the king off in a tirade and ordered the <clears throat> executions of everyone. And it was a, it was a pretty direct challenge to the king as well, because after all, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's insisting that his wise man tell the dream. And so Daniel begins by, in a way, kind of calling into question the reasonableness of this dictator, which is pretty bold. And yet, he also responds with remarkable humility. He says, no wise man can do this, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made it known to you. Think about it. Daniel has the opportunity of a lifetime to take credit for something, right? He can come in <clears throat> and be the savior of the day. He has the answer that everyone's been searching for. He can come in and, and be lifted up to the highest place in Babylon, collect the rewards of all... Uh, of his interpretation here. But what does he do instead? He takes no credit for himself. 
Instead, he points to the true provider of the dream and the true provider of wisdom, the God of heaven. So how does this equip us to live in this present age? What can we learn here? And I think just a couple of thoughts before we close. The first is that we have a God who invites us to come to him for wisdom. James tells us this, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And God will give it to him. We can come to him with our needs, with our questions, with our doubts. When we're making decisions, we can ask for clarity. When we're confused, we can ask for insight. When we feel lost, we can ask for direction. But most of all, we can, we can ask for him to give us a godly understanding of life. The greatest commandment we're told by the Lord is, is to love the Lord with all our being, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, which means that the greatest concern of God for us is that we are shaped by and motivated by a right understanding of life and of him, by his understanding of ultimate reality. And to see the world and our lives from his perspective and to then live in light of that. And so if that's God's desire for us, we can come to him and ask for that and he promises to do that in us. So the question is, do we want that? Is that what you want in life? Do you want to walk in dependence on him? Or do we want to depend on our own capabilities, our own knowledge, our own intuition? What do our actions show us? His wisdom for our lives is on offer to everyone who will come to him with open hands and a trusting heart. So we can come and ask. Second thought is that it is actually the wisdom of God that will shape us into the kind of people not only that we were designed to be, but that our world desperately needs right now. You know, we talk much about the division and the polarization we see in our society and around the world. It seems that everywhere we turn, there's, there's conflict over this thing, there's bickering over that thing, there's groups at war with one another, there's these polemics that have torn apart families and friends and even churches. And why is that? You know, there's a bunch of contributing factors, but I want to think about just one very basic factor, and that is our attitude. You know, we tend, many of us anyways nowadays, to approach issues of the day as pragmatists, which means that we come looking at things from a, a lens of whatever works. Whatever is effective to get the job done, that's what we do. But that approach has left many of us, having lost this ability to hold intention together, conviction and humility. That is to say, we, we tend to emphasize one of those over against the other. So either we think that we need to, to come to an issue with strong conviction, and what that means is you know, bombast or zeal or this kind of hard edge, win at all costs mindset. And, and so our, our attitude is to come in and fight, right? To destroy the other for the sake of our convictions. But then on the other end of this, we come to an issue with, with humility, with, with meekness, with gentleness. And our desire is 
to create harmony, to create peace, for everyone to kind of just get along, right? And the way that we do that is often by letting go of our convictions in order to be accepted or to get others to cooperate. And so we set out to appease others. And we see the problems when those things are, are opposed to one another, pitted against each other. You see how we end up where we are. But what we see in Daniel here is that the wisdom of God actually creates both in us. It empowers us with truth, with, with revelation, with understanding from the Lord, which fuels zeal and, and commitment and courage and a willingness to step into difficult things, to have hard conversations, to be, to be rooted and grounded in truth. But it also simultaneously equips us with humility because we know that this is a, a, a gift that is received from us, not earned, that we are wholly dependent upon God and that whatever we receive is meant to be used for the good of others. So rather than building up an ego, it instills in us a heart of, of care, of compassion, an attitude of gentleness and patience and concern for the other. And the wisdom of God cultivates in us an extraordinary boldness and a remarkable humility that, that blossom together and bring life. And that is what a polarized world so desperately needs, is a people who do not neglect a commitment to truth, but who are also, also deeply humble. And it is the wisdom of God that does that in us, because ultimately the wisdom of God that we receive is by his grace. You know, Daniel received the revelation of a dream that saved him and those around him, and he rejoiced in God's provision of wisdom. But there was an even greater revelation to come one day, not in the form of a dream, but in a person. The one true God who, unlike the Babylonian gods, did indeed come to make his dwelling with men. The Apostle Paul tells us about this, 1 Corinthians. He says, For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Jesus, the wisdom of God, we see embodied the perfect combination of conviction and humility, of boldness and compassion, of truth and of grace, not one or the other or half and half, but both to the full. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, came not only to reveal to you the way to God, but in that revelation and in your trust in him to provide the way for your salvation, like Daniel's.